Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know, sometimes the world does intervene. And sometimes, like, when you're running, you, like, trip on a stick and you break your ankle, right? And you're really set back. And sometimes you're, you know, you work really hard and you have a great opportunity and you don't get it because the world is unjust and the world is often unjust. But as a general principle, the philosophy I like is just keep trying as hard as you can, being as self-aware as you can, and assume that you'll get opportunities and ideally you'll make the most of them. What's up, family? Thank you for tuning in to the Dream Nation podcast. My name is Casanova. I'll be your host, and I'm excited to be bringing to you entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and trailblazers from around the world. Stay locked in with us because we're about to go on a journey that will change your life. What's up, Dream Builder? We are back again with another episode that I'm excited to bring to you because today we're going to learn about all of things journalism. I think we have one of the best journalists in the country, maybe even in the world, um, here on the show today. And I've learned a little bit about your story, but I'm excited to dive in more. So without further ado, please help me in welcoming my friend, Mr. Nicholas Thompson to the show. Nicholas, you want to go ahead and say what's up to Dream Nation? (laughs) What's up, Dream Nation? And thank you so much for having me on, Casanova. Oh, absolutely. It's going to be a fun episode. So I don't know if you've heard many of the episodes before, but the way that I always love to start off each episode is I compare us as entrepreneurs, thought leaders, change makers to superheroes. And the reason being is because we're constantly flying around the world, we're putting on a cape, and we're trying to solve some of the world's biggest problems. And so a lot of the times what we all know is we know how to describe Superman. We know what he, who he is and what he does. But what we can't sometimes a lot of the times describe is who's the guy behind the scenes? Who's that Clark Kent? Where did that guy come from? And who really is he? And so my question for you is, when people aren't seeing you on Twitter or seeing you on CNN or or any of these other articles that's, you know, made waves, when you take off the camera and, and even take off the glasses, tell us behind the scenes, who is Nick Thompson? Well, behind the scenes, I'm father of three, living in Brooklyn. Got three boys, 13, 11, and eight. Spending a lot of time with them, working with them on all kinds of stuff. I'm playing guitar and I'm very steadily trying to learn what I need to learn to do my job well, trying to manage the complexities of it, trying to figure out a complicated organization and just trying to do my best and do a little better every day. Yeah, I love it. Now let's take it back though and and tell us a little bit about your childhood. Um, you know, cuz you told me you're from Boston, but then people just heard that you live in Brooklyn. So take us back to your childhood. What was it like growing up? Was there entrepreneurship or what was that? Yeah, I grew up in I grew up in Boston, a suburb of Boston called Brookline, and um my mother is an art historian, my father was a professor of foreign policy. They split when I was little. My father came out of the closet. He was a government official. He ended up spending a lot of his life in Southeast Asia. Um, I've written a lot about him in the context of my life in running, which we can talk about a little bit later on. Um, but I grew up in Brookline. Um, I ended up leaving to go to college at uh, Stanford in California, where you know I'm immersed in the tech boom, like the first big tech bubble 
Um, and I, I'm sort of aware of it. I sort of miss out on it. I worked for a Linux hardware company for a little while. Um, but I, when I, I have this funny thing that I sometimes think back where I was very intensely ambitious in college, but had no plan for after college. There's like a very weird dichotomy because normally you have both, right? There are people who are either sort of not in it in college, not really sure what comes next, or there are people who are in it and they know what's going to come next. And I was kind of in it, but had no idea what would come next. <laughs> and I finished and I kind of, I got a little bit lost. Like I wanted to be a musician. Maybe I was going to be in tech. Maybe I was going to go in politics. Maybe I was going to do journalism. Um, and it's kind of winging it. And so I had a, like a real, very formative twist. Um, about a year after college, I go and I get, kind of by happenstance, kind of by good fortune, I got hired in a really good job at 60 Minutes, TV show, CBS, it's great. Yeah. So I'm like, heck yeah, I'm an associate producer at 60 Minutes, right? I've gotten hired. I've written a bunch of articles, you know, running good publications, and I show up and uh, go into the headquarters on West 57th Street and executive producer of the show is like, who are you? I'm like, I'm the new associate producer. Hi, I'm Nick. And it's like, what, what have you done? I said, well, you know, did this, did that. Here's my GPA, right? Like recorded some music and he fired me on the spot. And so I lasted at 60 minutes, less than an hour. Um, what'd you so do to I'm get fired? Say again? What'd you do to get fired? I'm sure the world wants to know, like what happened? Like what transpired? Like he was just like, why are you here? Like, you don't have, you don't have the experience for this job. I was like, well, I went through the interviews and you hired me. Yeah. And he's like, I didn't hire you. You're done. Um, and you know, the people who had hired me didn't want to stand up to him. I mean, to be fair, I did not have the experience to be an associate producer at 60 minutes. Like I had not worked in television. I had been hired because someone wanted to take a chance on somebody they thought was smart and ambitious, you know, part of the job of a, you know, I was going to, you know, go help correspondent you know carry her cameras and audio equipment across burma and she thought like well this guy will be good at it and the executive producer was like no way so i was i was sol so i go out on the streets of west 57th street and i'm like well, well now what am i going to do with my life so then the next twist is um one of my best friends from college was going to africa maybe three weeks later he was going to go spend you know nine months traveling the world you know, by bus before starting graduate school and so I kind of map it out, do the finances. And I'm like, all right, I'll get my vaccines. And I'm going to come with you. I'll try to support myself by writing, but I'll just, you know, we'll see what happens. And I'll go out there for a couple months. And so I go out there and like on the first day, I get kidnapped um, by drug dealers in Morocco, um, which in a way is bad, right? You don't want to be kidnapped by drug right. dealers in Morocco. Not a good thing, not at all. Um, but the good thing is they release me after a day. They decide I'm useless. Um, I had some weird plan. They wanted me to distribute their drugs in New York, but you know that obviously wasn't going to work. They hadn't thought it out too carefully. And so they release me, and I reconnect with my friend, and he says something very wise. They'd taken like $60 and a shirt. It was all they could find in my backpack. Right? I didn't have anything of value they could get in my backpack. And he's like, you just got an amazing story for $60 and a shirt. Uh, and I ended up, writing a story about being kidnapped and then my time traveling through West Africa that ran in the Washington Post. And then suddenly I've got a clip in the Washington Post. I've got a little credibility for writing about Africa. Uh, and that eventually led me to get an interview at a place called the Washington Monthly. And then I got hired at the Washington Monthly as an editor. And that sort of began my career in journalism. 
So I'm sure a lot of people are like, hold on, hold on. Let's go back and let's talk about how exactly did you get kidnapped? Like, was this a situation where you were maybe in like a cab or something? And then the people just see that you're kind of more of the tourists. And then they're like, hey, we like, how did that come about? How did you get kidnapped? I think it's kind of the, the same reason I got fired from 60 Minutes is that like a more sophisticated person looked at me and said, that guy's an idiot. So I was in Marrakesh. You know, so it's the northernmost point of Morocco. Uh, and I'm supposed to take a train down to Casablanca. And I brought my guitar with me. I'm like a fairly serious musician. At this, I mean, still am, but like fairly serious musician at this point in my life. So I'm in the train station waiting. I start playing guitar. Right? And I'm just playing. And this guy comes up to me. He says, hey, my, my name is Muhammad. Um, he's like, would you like to come to my house for a Ramadan feast? And I'm like hey, yeah, right? Like, why else would I be in Morocco? Like, I've got to learn about Morocco and meet people. And so I go and we take the train together, maybe an hour south of Marrakesh. And then like, we get out, we go to our car and I'm starting to feel weird. Like there's something weird about him. And then we get in his car and he starts like driving really fast in circles. And I'm like, oh, fuck. But what do I do? Um, and then he takes me to his house. He locks me in the bathroom. And I can tell like, it's a very bad situation. Um, his you know, brother comes out, I'm still talking in Arabic. I'm sitting there on the couch. They're smoking marijuana, like talking about me, trying to figure out what to do. And they're like, okay, we need you to distribute our drugs in New York. And I'm like, I don't quite know how the mechanics of that are going to work, right? Like, how about you let me go? I'll give you a postal address, right? Like, you know, it didn't, it was just a sort of a very confusing conversation. And you know, they turn out the lights and like, but they never like, I don't know, hit me on the head with a, you know, bag of sand or something, right? I like, they just, they were sort of, they had a lot of drugs. They were trying to figure out what to do with them. They thought it was going to be useful. And then they like go through all my stuff. And I think that was probably the point where they're like, you kind of, you catch a fish and you're like, no one's going to eat this. And they throw it back in the, in the water. I think that was when they were like, throw this one back, right? And so then like, they decided they're like, eventually it was like after a day, I think. And they're like, get rid of this guy. So they take the 60 bucks and they like, open the door and they're like, get out of here. And so then I, I'm out on the street, find my way to the train station. I don't know how I got on the train, but I got on the train and I take the train to Casablanca. That was that. So there's, there's two, obviously these are two pretty catastrophic events like for you and just how, I guess my question is, how did you keep your composure when it feels like everything is unraveling at this moment, right? Like, you all of a sudden get fired from a job. I'm sure there was a lot of emotion for you to get this CBS job. You're going in that next day. You wake up early. You're like, this is going to be the greatest day ever, right? I'm about to be into, you know, film production and everything else. And then boom, you're fired. And you find yourself walking along the, the, the busy streets of New York, right? And you see that you no longer are significant. You don't matter anymore because there's so much going past. And you're like, okay. And then all of a sudden you get kidnapped. You're in a bathroom, they turn off lights, and now you're like, how do you not freak out to the moment of like seeing these things on TV where you're like, oh my God, are they about to come kill me? Are they bringing in the mob boss? Or what are they going to try? You know, how do you not freak out? How do you keep your composure? What goes through your mind in times of just so much um, turbulence is the best way that I could think of putting it. Yeah. So I think in the... the Two parts, one where I did keep my mind, one where I didn't. So in the moment when I was in the, in the house in Morocco or locked, locked in that mud bathroom, I, I think I kept my composure because I knew it was the only thing to do. There wasn't, like I didn't have, 
it was like a slow motion. It was a slow motion kidnapping. Like they didn't put a bag on my head and grab me from the train station. Like it took me a little while to realize what the heck was going on. Um, you know, it could have, who knows what would have happened if they'd like pulled a knife or pulled a gun or um, I suddenly felt like I had to jump out the window. And right? so that didn't happen. So I just sort of stayed calm, partly because it seemed like the right thing to do, partly because I didn't know what else to do. Um, do you think that that's the reason why it never turned crazy is because you never turned, you didn't freak out. So yet they didn't be like, oh my, like we need to pull a knife or a gun because you yeah, stayed probably. calm. Right. It's, it's kind of, you know, like when a wild dog runs at you, right? Like you act crazy, the dog is going to bite you. You put your arms up, you make yourself wide and you like talk calmly and, you know, the dog will back down usually. I mean, um, so there are different situations where you want to, you, you want to fight back, you want to act crazy and there are situations where you don't. And I was clearly in a situation where you didn't, right? You're outnumbered, don't know where you are. Like not, you don't, I had no, I had, no leverage. Also, important context. This is in 1998. And this had happened after 2001, after the Twin Towers, after Daniel Pearl, after sort of the clash of civilizations moment between, you know, Christianity, radical Islam. Like, you can imagine it being a much darker moment three years later. Mm -hmm. um, so that was how I kept cool in the moment. But the other question you asked is super perceptive because I did have a lot of self-confidence. Like, I was a kid who always done well in school, always done well socially. Like, you know, in the very narrow metrics by which we measure ourselves, you know, from ages like 15 through 21, like, I did great, right? And suddenly it's 22, and you're, but you're in a whole new world. Like, and you shift out of the sort of privileged, confined, like, world that I lived in, you know, through high school and this you know, amazing college I went to. Um, and I was like, whoa, this is new. This is different. And it was hard to get my bearings. And it took me, it took a little while uh, to sort of regain my confidence, figure out where I was. But I think it was also helpful. I mean, I think part of what getting knocked down so fast, right? Um, you're getting knocked down so fast. And it happened again in my 20s where you're doing well and I get knocked, you know, knocked flat. Like it makes you, makes you a little more resilient, but also it makes you a little... Like I'm, I will forever always be worried if I'm at a moment of, you know, doing well that something bad's about to happen. Like that is, that's, that's going to stay with me forever. Right? And that's like, you know, it comes from lots of things, but it comes partly from, from that. Yeah. And that's very interesting. I think it's timely and not, we don't have to go too deep into this. Of course, everybody else is talking about it, but obviously that Will Smith moment, right. Of, of him smacking, but then him coming back on stage as he was giving his acceptance speech. And he says what Denzel said to him, right. He said, and when you're at your highest moment is at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When the devil comes for you. And that's kind of what I just heard you say, right? When you're doing too well, you're kind of then you're like, okay, what's what's coming next? Yeah, I mean, it's a much lower high moment than Will Smith, right? Like, you know, getting decent grades in college is not quite winning an Academy Award, but it is true that like, it's like when you're doing well, like what my dad used to say uh, was he whom the gods wish to destroy, they first make promising. And um, you say that to me all the time. And um, I'm pretty sure he said that to me in this context after, after my, 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 my problems that year. Yeah, no, so that's definitely interesting stories. I'm sure there's some people that, that have their imagination. They're like, I don't know what, because I don't know what I would have did, you know, in those moments. I normally, especially being in real estate, I've learned to train myself to stay cool, calm, collect it. But being in a whole nother country with no one, you know, and all of a sudden I find myself in a mud bathroom. That's a situation where you're like, okay, it, like, and it's just like you said, I think the context of the year is totally different because if that does happen now, you've just been exposed to so many more things through social media and all that, that it's going to be even harder to quiet your mind to just say, let's stay cool, calm, collected in this. But yeah, so let's, let's kind of transition now because I think what you've, you've done over your career has been something that's been pretty phenomenal. And I think something that I would probably say 60, 70% of people are looking to do, which is kind of build out media companies, media brands, everybody's sharing now. So talk to me about how did you first become, you know, working for someone to then all of a sudden you decide that you're going to start up your own and, and now become a leader of a media company? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting transition. It happens slowly. So I um, I became an editor first and my you know, an editor at the Washington Monthly, but also like a manager, right? Where you're managing, you know, small teams, but copy editors, you know, interns and enjoyed managing. I was never like a lone wolf reporter who must like, you know, be on assignment by himself in Afghanistan, cut off from the world. Right? That wasn't me. I always liked being with people. I was always very social and enjoyed managing. Um, I then, you know, I sort of followed a pretty typical path where I, you know, with some setbacks where I you know, lost jobs or didn't get jobs. But I followed a pretty steady path from, you know, one publication to a slightly better publication to bigger publication to a bigger publication. And so then by the time I was about, say I was 35, um, I was a senior editor at The New Yorker. Just like kind of the apex of where you want to be, you know, um, as a senior editor, either at The Atlantic or The New Yorker. And so I thought my life would be... Um, I'm going to be editing magazine feature stories. And I could, I, I remember when I took that job, telling my wife, like, I could do this for the next 40 years. Like, nothing wrong with that. Um, but I was inside this institution with a couple of amazing bosses, David Remnick, Pam McCarthy. And I think they saw something. They were like, oh, this kid kind of understands technology more than others. I had worked at Wired. You know, I spent my time working in Silicon Valley. I had some tech background. I knew how to, like, code a website. Um, and so they put me in charge of managing the iPad project. I also, on the side, got really excited about multimedia journalism and started like a side company building a CMS for multimedia journalism. So I had like an entrepreneur career going. And what happened was the New Yorker sort of shifted my job. So it became less about editing and more about managing, more about defining their digital strategy. And then I was hired as the editor-in-chief of Wired. 
um, where again, my job is partly editing, but like the mix, right? How much of my job is editing, assigning, writing stories, and how much of it is trying to figure out digital strategy and business goes from like 90, 10 to 10, 90, right? Over mm -hmm. time, right? And, but it, it's not like a sudden shift. And then, you know, opportunity comes up to be a candidate to be CEO of the Atlantic, to really oversee the business strategy, to get to work with the product and engineering teams, to really figure out subscription strategy. It was something where I had done pieces of the job at The New Yorker and Wired. And so I applied, went to the interviews and said, heck, this sounds great. So that's, that's the quick version of how I went from A to B. Gotcha. Now, let me ask, through that transition, if you could look back on it, would you say that a lot of your success or a lot of the opportunities that came to you was more about your willingness to be versatile and, and have all these different spokes in your bag? Or was it just a lot more about the relationship side of it, as in, you know, you did all these things, so you built these relationships. So then when the opportunity for the Atlantic comes about, you kind of knew you already had, you know, uh, a, a step up because of the relationships that you had? Such a good question. So I think that anybody who, everybody who's like analyzed my personality since I was about 14 years old, right? Has said, he's somebody who has lots of interests, right? He's somebody who prefers to be doing three different things than one thing, right? It was my dad was sometimes like critique me for it, right? Uh, my dad is like extremely perceptive and cutting. Right? My mother is extremely perceptive and like kind. Uh, but my dad would like push me on this. And, you know, it's certainly true of, it's certainly true of my life all the way through where I'm working as a journalist, but I'm also working as a musician. Right? I'm doing all these, I've always got these side things going on. I've always got these projects going on. And so that, that does do two things. It does exactly the two things you mentioned. One, it makes you very versatile, right? And particularly in media. And so my business is one that has changed immensely, right? One where, you know, relatively simple processes of how you get readers, right? It used to be you would write a magazine. The U.S. Postal Service would take that magazine and it would deliver it to your readers and the readers would read whatever you put into it. Now it's, you know, you have to deal with the algorithms. It's all based on SEO, right? Like it's a completely different process. You take your story, you chop it up a million ways and you try to figure out how to get it to travel on TikTok, right? Like there's a totally different process. And so my business has privileged versatility. So I definitely think that it's something about my innate personality that made me try to do lots of different things that made me give me a made me a candidate, a reasonable candidate. And it's also of course exactly what you said, the fact that I was doing all these different things connected me with different people who then, you know, were helpful in teaching me about how systems worked, right? How algorithms work, how how AI works, how the ad business works. So I knew a lot of people in a lot of different fields when I became a candidate to for this job. So I'm not sure which one is more important, but they're, they're twinned in a very interesting way. And that's a, a great question. Yeah, yeah. I, and I only ask that because I think a lot of people, because of now the opportunity to be more remote, it gives people more flexibility on trying multiple passions, right? Trying multiple things, right? Because before you were sitting in maybe a cubicle all day, eight to five, but now because of the pandemic and everything, it's allowed you to even work from home. Well, now you don't have that manager that's on your neck. So you, and you got a computer in front of you. So now you can look up, you know, three, four, five different things and try them. So it's very, very um, interesting. Well, yes and no though, right? I mean, you totally, you don't have a manager on your neck, right? So you have more flexibility to do what you want. But you also don't have like the engineer sitting two seats away who you can just ask a question to. So like there is like a social 
connection that we're losing, right? So the world of working from home can totally make people more flexible and give them like broader interests. And it can also like cut off access to some of that. It really depends on who you are and how you take advantage of this moment. Yeah, I would, and I would definitely agree with that. I think that, but when we say that, like you don't have that engineer, I think for a lot of companies, depending on how, uh, you know, how much they're willing to adapt, you also have things like Slacks and you have things like WhatsApp and things like that, where you can, you know, depending on what your company's using, that quick voice message where, you know, that, that person could respond. So I, again, I think that it goes right to what you were saying about what is your personality, right? Do you, do you like those types? Because you still also have to be willing to utilize those platforms. But if you're if you're resistant to them, you're not going to get the most out of whatever you could. Yeah, it's very, very true. Very true. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, because I'm still very fascinated as we look at these things. And I think it really became um, a, a focal point for me. And, and really fascinated with it when Gary Vee might have said this like three, four years ago when he was talking about how everyone is essentially a media company. No matter who you are, you are a media company. Everything that you share, everything that you tweet, it doesn't matter, right? So then when I start to look at this, I think that one of the things that we all love is we love to get information, right? If, when you looked at that Will and Chris Rock thing, it was on literally every, I've never seen people have so much opinions on something. Right. That that has nothing to do with them. So my question to you, though, is now when you look at something like the Atlantic or Wired or anything else, how much tougher is it to build a media company today than it was, say, you know, six, seven years ago when it was like a couple premier sources, whereas now anyone can become a premier source, even an individual person? Yeah, it's way harder. Um, and there are a couple of structural reasons why it's become harder. And I say that in the context of saying like, this is an amazing time to be a journalist. Like every, all of the structural problems I'm gonna talk about also have massive structural benefits. But for an established media brand, right? So structural problem A is, it used to be much easier to get advertisers, right? If you wanted to reach people who cared about tech, you would buy an ad in Wired. <laughs> then social media came around. If you wanna reach people who care about tech, you buy an ad on Facebook targeted to people who have said they like tech, or who Facebook has tracked and understand. Like Facebook has a thousand times as much data. It used to be the only way to create that bundle of readers. That's why the magazine ecosystem developed the way it was, right? Like newspapers, you wanna reach somebody in Pittsburgh, you know, advertise in the Pittsburgh paper. You wanna advertise someone in Pittsburgh, you know, or you wanna advertise someone who likes golf, you're advertising a golf magazine. That's how like media developed based on these advertising bundles. And then the internet completely broke that. Facebook and Google just broke that, you know or they outcompeted. They came up with a better idea for reaching these people. So the business model goes kapooch, right? And so a lot of my life has been spent, all right, well, that business model disappears. What's the new business model? Because media is important. And that's like a big challenge of my life and the thing I've spent plurality of my time the last you know, 10, 15 years. That's problem number one. Problem number two is individual brands, right? So like power in all institutions and in all environments has gone from the center to the nodes, right? That's what social media does, right? Like no one cares about the studios. We care about the actors. Like people don't like the all-star team in the NBA. It's no longer East and West. It's the, you know, Giannis versus LeBron, right? It's all going to individuals, right? And right. in media, right? Like you used to care more about like the Atlantic and now you might care about like individual reporters. Like you might have a real attachment to Ed Young and not even know he works for the Atlantic, right? Um, and so media has to handle that dynamic. And then also because you have all the reporters out 
like with their own brands, but also partly your brand on social media, you have, you know, other things to worry about. So it's created this really complicated. Oh, and then of course, there's this huge problem, the distribution problem, which I mentioned earlier, which is we used to control it. You're like, if we put out a good magazine, it would appear on your table. And you know, if you read it, you think it was good. Now we can put out a magazine and how on earth are we going to, you know, get anybody to read it unless we can get the algorithms to promote it, right? So you're suddenly like, you're dependent upon Google. Basically, Google is where most of the readers come from. Google evaluating your story and determining that it's a kind of story it wants to serve to other people. And that's a whole new challenge. So technology has sort of busted business model, the sort of relationship with readers, you know, the way our stories get around in all these complicated and interesting ways. And so my job is to identify all these changes, identify what media can do to take advantage of them, to work with them, to use them as best we can. So that's, you know, to the extent I'm good at my job, it's figuring that out. To the extent I'm bad at my job, it's like not staying as far enough ahead as I need to or missing trends and missing waves. Um, but absolutely, it's, a, it's like the fundamental issue in my business. Yeah. So how do you, I guess when you, I think the simplest way to ask this is where do you see this over the next 10 years for big companies, like you said, Wired, The Atlantic, for these guys to stay relevant? Because even when we talk about, you know, business inside or things like that, like before that was the place that you went, but now there's 10, 12, 15 other smaller, you know, that, that then could get that news out even sometimes maybe even faster. Right. And, and so like, how do you feel that the bigger brands stay relevant? How do you stay relevant and what does it look like seven to 10 years from now? Yeah. So I, I guess I believe in a couple core principles, right? I couldn't possibly predict exactly how it will develop, but the core principles are the work you have to do, the work you do has to be excellent, right? It has to be the best. Like you're not, no one who does mediocre work, no matter how good they are at understanding Facebook or Twitter will last seven to 10 years. You can last a little while, but you have to do excellent work. So that's the, that's the starting point. And you have to do original work. Um, so the Atlantic has to continue to be the place where we hire the best writers, get the best editors, they write the best stories. That's, that's table stakes. Like that's necessary, but, but not sufficient. So then the next step is you have to, as much as possible, able to establish ways you can have direct relationships with readers. So they actually know they're reading The Atlantic. So I want, I want people to subscribe to The Atlantic. I want them to read us inside The Atlantic app. I want them to recognize when they're reading an Atlantic story, even if they come in from Twitter. I want to help them on a journey from not knowing what The Atlantic is to knowing that this is a you know, special place where if they come, they'll find incredible stories. So that's sort of principle number two, get as many people as you can into as many direct relationships as you can, treat them fairly, respectfully, respect their privacy, you know, treat them well, give them the best information you can, and ideally make that relationship stronger. And then I guess the third principle would be study, be interested in, be aware of all of the trends in tech and make calculated bets on how to expend your resources. Like figure out, okay, there's you know, clearly a big phenomenon happening with newsletters. Like really think through what should your strategy be. Clearly traffic right now is being driven by SEO and by Google. Okay, so let's go in deep, right? Like I think one of the mistakes that some journalists make and some even some executives is they're like, 
oh, Google it destroyed our business. Like, I'm not going to worry about Google. I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to do my thing. No, <laughs> you got to do your thing as well as you can. And you got to learn every single possible thing about like how page speed informs the algorithm and like what is the unused JavaScript on your page that you can remove to increase your page speed so that more people find your stories. Like you've just got to, you got to do all that. And right. all of that is hard and it's constantly changing. So maybe if you follow those three principles, you got a better shot at making it through the next seven to 10 years. So that's my job. Gotcha, gotcha. And for someone who's looking at this right now, because a lot of people are, you, you know, I can't remember the exact number, but it's a crazy amount of people that say they're unhappy with their job right now and that they want to go find something else that they're passionate about. So a lot of people are leaving their jobs. Well, we know that a lot of people have passions about writing and telling their narratives on stories. So for people, like, do you think that it's the same? Because we've talked from a CEO perspective, from an executive perspective, but let's talk about from the other side, somebody who's listening at this that says, man, I'm um, I'm very interested in writing for the Atlantic, right? I don't know if my stuff is, is good enough, but like, where do I even start to be able to be a candidate for someone like the Atlantic? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I love about journalism, right? And it's one of the best things and one of the hardest things is that it's a truly meritocratic profession, right? And has their imperfections, imperfections in how the meritocracy works. But you know, if you want to be a doctor, right, you got to go to medical school, you got to learn a lot, like there's a lot you have, you have to do. And then the way you're judged, there aren't, it's kind of hard to judge who's a better doctor, who's a worse, right? You know, than some hospital, like there are ways it works. Lawyer, you got to go like, take three years at law school, you got to learn this language. And then like, kind of hard to tell, right? Journalism, your story's out there. Everybody can read your story. If you write a story, it is available on the internet to every person with an internet connection, and they can make a determination if it's good or bad. And so any single person writing this could write something tomorrow that is just a magical essay that an editor at The Atlantic reads or an editor at some other publication and says, that person's great, right? There is a, a path to, like there is a way to get in that, exists in very few professions. And this is one of the things that keeps journalism lively because you know, I got hired to be editor. I got a really great job running you know, a real publication when I was 24 years old. Like it's cool that when you're young, you can get that much responsibility. It also makes it complicated when you're older because you're, if you're an older lawyer, you kind of have tenure, right? Like anybody's coming for your job or coming for your position has to go to law school, has to learn the craft, has to become made a partner, right? In journalism, like there's a constant, you know, constant competition because everybody's coming in. So it's a thing that makes it an awesome profession and then a hard profession right there. You know, in order to, and it's something I think about when I think about the next 20, 30 years of my career, like I got to, there's not a day where I will be able to stop hustling because as soon as I stop hustling, like some smart person can come and just, you know, do what I do and do it better. Um, so, you know, back to the person who wants to write for the Atlantic, you know, you've got to go, I mean, there are things you have to do. You have to learn. Like the Atlantic has certain rules of style and you know, voice and we cover certain topics and we really love reporting and there's, you know, it's learning how to make your stories factually accurate is, is quite hard. But you know, if you have a passion and a way to do it, you know, you can start writing and you know, whether you're publishing, self-publishing a medium, whether you're publishing in a smaller publication, you know, you eventually move your way and you get noticed. So it, it's a wonderful profession in that way.
Gotcha. So you wouldn't say though, I mean, cause I always love to make sure we can give concrete and tactical. And you, you mentioned something that you said, you know, we have a, a style of writing at the Atlantic and I'm sure every other company would say so as well, but let's keep it on the Atlantic. How would someone go to learn that? Would it be just going to your website or are you saying, Hey, no, you gotta be very creative. Look at the other writers that are currently already writing for us and look at what their styles are and try to see if you can pick up, like, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and there's there's not like a, a style rule, right? You know, and if you submit a story and you don't have serial commas, we will reject it immediately. I mean, there, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, the Atlantic cares a lot about voice, precision, language. You know, I, I don't write for the Atlantic, right? Now I'm the CEO. But I remember when I was at the New Yorker, um, and I, I did write for the New Yorker, but not that often. When I would write a story, I would... I would make sure that I, you know, A, I would like go back and read Strunk and White, right? Like read, like read the classic books you're taught in high school about like how to write efficiently. But the most important thing I would do is I would go take books or articles by my favorite writers. You know, I would, there's a woman named Catherine Boo who I just think writes the most beautiful sentences. And I would take her books or her articles and I would read them out loud to myself. And I would pay a lot of attention to what she was doing in each sentence, right? And try to think about, okay, what is she doing with rhythm? What is she doing with voice? So I think if you want to be a really, if you want to be a great writer, a good thing to do is find the people you love and you admire and look carefully what they do, right? Like think about the author whose book you, you love most recently, like read a section of it out loud, look at it, like, okay, what, what is he or she doing with sentences? What's going on with transitions? Okay, how are characters introduced? Okay, what are like, are there cliffhangers at the end of chapters or is it, you know, how are descriptions work? How do, you know, how do they describe people, right? How do they... How do they introduce drama? Is it subtle? You know, and, and like, if you focus on people you love who you know are doing really good work, it's a, it's a great way to learn. And everybody wants, you know, you want to have your own individual voice, your own individual style, right? Like, I don't, I mean, I'm not as good a writer as Catherine Boo. I also have a different style as Catherine Boo. So, um, and you know, not, not just her, there lots of people whose work I read very carefully and pay a lot of attention to. But I think that's a, that is a specific tactic that I found very useful in my life. Yeah, I think that's a great, great advice. And I think that could be, you know, no matter what someone's um, interested in, whether it's writing, whether it's podcasting, any type of journalism, which like you said, I mean, media is very important, as we see that media is driving all of our lives in one way or another. And so being able to understand how to decipher or, you know, figure out who are the people who are already doing what you want to do or who interest you. Right. And then just trying to pick up anything that you can for them, I think is huge. And it kind of what popped into my head as well was kind of that Pareto rule. Right. Which is that 80, 20 or 90, 10. Like you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just need a good structure. But that 20 or 10 percent is going to be a lot of your voice as you get the structure down. Um, and I think that that's something that could be huge for a lot of people. But I've never heard of Catherine Boo. I'm very interested to look her her stories up, though. But then just see, you know, what is her Great. cadence? And then eventually yeah. over time, you'll figure your own stuff out. So, I mean, it's a little bit like, I'm just thinking about the way my kids are learning basketball and soccer, right? And they, you know, we'll go, we live right by the Barclays Center, we'll go to the Nets game. And right, they like, you know, you watch my, my 11 year old, you know, like, and he's doing like little James Harden things, right? And he can't quite do it like James Harden, but he's doing the like, you between the legs and the step back, right? And he's not going to, his game it's not going to reach the level. Of, I mean, it'd be amazing if it reaches the level. I don't want to. If you're listening, Zachary, you, you may reach it, but it's unlikely. Most kids who try to be James Harden aren't going to be James Harden. God willing, won't be James Harden personality-wise. But in any case, you want James Harden game, um, or he'll imitate like 
you know, the way Kevin Durant lines his feet up at the foul line, right? Or like the sort of the incredible posture of Steph Curry and the gooseneck that he uses, right? And they watch this very attentively and incorporate it. And so their games are based on like really watching carefully. And it's pretty neat to see the little things they pick up because when you're your brains are so malleable at that age and what they observe, like I wouldn't have noticed Durant's feet. Um, so, you know, in some ways, what like what one tries to do as a writer, what I think one tries to do as a writer is kind of like that, like listen, study and make your brain as malleable as it is when you're when you're a kid. Yeah, great, great advice. Uh, so now let me ask you, uh, you've had a lot of success, right? And you told us about it. And obviously it's been unconventional success and you've been very transparent about that. But for somebody who's listening right now that says, Okay, um, I've heard all of the success, but out of the things that if he could have changed anything, and I always used to say if you were to change one thing, but people would always come back to me and they say, you know what, I wouldn't change anything because it's made me who I am, which I always call out a little bit. And I'm like, we would all change something, but here nor there, I give that to him. So I've learned to phrase this in a different way. And the way that I ask this now is if there was one thing that you wish that you would have implemented sooner to accelerate your path on your journey and your dream to where you are today, what would that one thing be? Well, I think that the, you know, my, my path has been you sort of steady and good from my early thirties, right? Up through now. And I think I've, the big choices I've made correctly, right? And maybe five years from now when I'm flat on my back again, I'm like, well, hmm. um, but why, like it wasn't very good from my 20s to my 30s. And I think I didn't have, I didn't think I didn't have enough humility about how much I have to learn, how much better I have to get. And I both had like too much self-confidence and not enough self-confidence. And I had sort of too much self-confidence in that I didn't, I wasn't doing that thing I just talked to you about, for example, right? I wasn't like this constant study of how to get better at what you do, right? I was trying to do a lot and learn by doing, and you do learn by doing, but I didn't, I don't think I had enough humility to recognize like, I got to pause now and I got to really focus on learning this particular part of the craft. And I got to like study it and I got to ask people how to get better at it. And I got to like find really smart people. So I both had like too much confidence and I didn't have the ability and then not enough confidence in that, you know, I was also like kept expecting sort of things to fail, but I would sort of assume that it was like because the world was sort of unjust or aligned or opportunities didn't exist. Like, so I had like, I had sort of the wrong amount of confidence on both sides. And I feel like the proper philosophy is try to like, think about what you should be doing. Think about what you can be doing be as self-aware about your weaknesses and your strengths, constantly be trying to get better at the things you're bad at, be seeking out feedback and also have the assumption that if you do that, if you try hard, if you keep going forward, you do get better. Like, so I spent a lot of my time, I think part of this lesson comes from a sort of my, the hobby I spend the most time on, which is running. And, you know, I've spent a lot of my life as a competitive runner. And one of the things you learn in running is 
you know, everybody has everybody has max, but there are all kinds of interesting barriers along the way. But one of the central the central lesson you get is that if you go out there every week and you run as many miles as you can without getting past the line where you get hurt, if you run some of them hard, if you make yourself hurt some of the week, if you go past the point where you're comfortable, um, and you do that every week, you get better, right? And you will get better, and things will go well. And I kind of like I it's maybe it's a little too simple, and it, the, the analogy breaks down in other fields but i do i do feel like that is a good thing to think about for life that if you're just you're pushing yourself and you're being smart about it you know sometimes the world does intervene and sometimes like when you're running you like trip on a stick and you break your ankle right and you're really set back and sometimes you're you know you work really hard and you have a great opportunity you don't get it because the world is unjust and the world is often unjust but as a general principle the philosophy i like is just keep trying as hard as you can being as self-aware as you can and assume that you get opportunities and ideally you'll make the most of them. Yeah. Again, great, great, great uh, analysis. And and just like you said, I mean, pushing yourself, I think a lot of us, we get to a point because we've worked so hard to even get to where we are that we get to a point that we become, I don't want to say complacent, but we definitely become comfortable. Right. And you lose sight of, Hey, there's always another level. And because I was never chasing a specific accolade at the end of the day, if we look at the macro picture, we were chasing the best version of ourselves. And we don't know that we haven't already hit the best version of ourselves, but every single day we go through a hundred percent of the bad times of that day. So we're getting better. We just don't ever look at it in that macro. We're only looking in the micro of like, you, we just overcame this one thing, but we're not thinking that, oh my God, that one thing is actually 17 things on the week. And we've never had this many little L's as I like to call them. So yeah, that's interesting. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. And, and if we do, totally. I mean, we, we just have so much more confidence, like you said, that we can overcome this other thing too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. So again, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Um, I know that we're going to put all, well, first off, I want to be the first person, if no one has told you today, to say thank you and I appreciate you uh, for all of the <laughs> wisdom that you've given us today. We're going to make sure that we put all of the links in the show notes, especially the Atlantic and, uh, and you know, um, make sure that people can connect with your you know vision right. and where the company's going. But for anybody who wants to stay directly connected with you, uh, tell us where can they find you at? Um, I'm on Twitter, NX Thompson. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm posting all the time. I'm on Facebook, a little less on Instagram. So I'm I'm everywhere, and I you know respond to people, talk to people, and I'm around. Cool. Well, we'll definitely get those in the show notes. But again, Dream Nation, just as he said, you got to just keep going, keep pushing yourself because we all have a dream. And if you don't take action, which you know I'm all about taking action, if you don't take action, that dream that you have, it will only merely be a fantasy. That's all for this one. We'll catch you on the next one. Thank you so much. That's all we got for this episode. Thank you for sticking around. That truly means a lot to me. And hopefully that means that we delivered massive value on this one. If you haven't already, the way that you could say thank you to myself and the team is just by heading over to iTunes and leaving a review and a rating. That's what iTunes loves to see. That's how we get out there even more. And I would definitely, definitely be grateful for it. I know the team would as well. Do me a favor and head on over to dreamnationpodcast.com. That's where you're going to be able to find all of the resources that we talked about in today's episode, as well as more exclusive content. And you'll also be able to sign up to our email list where we have more 
more exclusive content. And we always love to hear the feedback from you all because you're our tribe. So remember, in the dream we trust, we'll see you on the flip side. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.